Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My 7 Wonders. Since the dawn of civilization, the greatest monuments, mausoleums, and other mighty works of mankind have been identified as wonders of the world. And like days of the week or deadly sins, there are always seven of them. The seven wonders of the world in ancient times included pyramids, hanging gardens, and a lighthouse. A more modern list of wonders includes the Taj Mahal, the Great Wall of China. Other lists of seven celebrate natural wonders such as the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, the Grand Canyon in America. Then there are seven engineering wonders of the world, which include the Panama Canal and the London sewage system. But what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? That's the question I ask my guests in this podcast. And the guest I'm asking today is the comedian, actor, TV presenter and writer Griff Rhys-Jones. Griff shot to fame in the 1980s in the big satirical, topical comedy programme of the era, not the nine o'clock news. Then going on to star in several series of the sketch show, Alas, Smith and Jones, in partnership with the late Mel Smith. In addition, Griff has taken a range of roles on stage and screen, as well as presenting documentaries about the restoration of old buildings, foreign travel and many other topics. Now, Griff, I know you pretty well. We've been friends for, I think it's nearly 50 years. Uh, but I'm not sure I would have predicted all of your choice of wonders, though I'm not surprised that you've struggled to get it down to seven because you do have a a lot of different interests uh, that you've uh, developed over the years. But the first one, I would have guessed uh, some form of it. So the first one you've selected is a sailing boat. Now, why, why a sailing boat? Now, a sailing boat is a wondrous object, but not necessarily because a mutual friend of ours I took him on my sailing boat uh, some years ago and he came and he was quite excited to come because we were in Essex and we got aboard it and uh, we got aboard the sailing boat and he, you know, he sort of sat himself in the corner and then there's quite a lot of flurry and noise in a sailing boat when you leave the harbour because, you know, you put up the sails and, you know, there's a lot of hauling that goes on and 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 on my boat, surprisingly, quite a lot of shouting. There's a lot of shouting. I've been on your <laughs> boat. <laughs> so, no, but just not not people mustn't confuse shouting on a sailing boat with in loud instruction. So there's quite a lot of loud instruction. <laughs> but uh, there's an element of learning the ropes, of course. Yes, that's where the phrase comes from. You know. So uh, anyway, you get it up, and um, this particular friend of ours, he said. Uh, Oh, right. Oh, I see we've got everything up now. And I said, yes, we have, yeah. And he said, oh, right, what happens now then? And I said, well, we're, um, you know, we're, we're sailing now and we will sail up the coast to our destination. All oh, right. How, you know, how long will that take? <laughs> well, uh, that will take, that will take, you know, it takes about two hours. Two hours? Yeah, well, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it does, you know, it, t- it takes a little he bit of time. He was bored, in other words. He wanted, he wanted more action. Yeah, of course. He couldn't understand it. I mean, and, he would sit there and you knew that you hadn't found a sailing companion if he looked out and saw a very fast motorboat going by and suddenly said, you know, 
Oh, look at her. Wow. Now that is a boat, isn't it? Look at that boat. You go, well, it's a sort of stinking, you know, noisy, sounds like a, a lorry stuck in first gear going uphill. That's the sort of thing you like. Oh, I know. I do like that. Of course, they, they might be going where we're going. You know, could we put the engine on ourselves? You see, the point about a sailing boat, and this is, I'm sure that a lot of it has to do with childhood. And many of these wonders will have to do with childhood. And your father had a sailing boat in your childhood. Yes, indeed. And so uh, from a very earliest age, I was ordered by my father to sit in the corner and shut up at certain times. You know, But we would often, he refused. I couldn't work out whether it was because of parsimony or some sort of Coleridge-type ancient mariner philosophy, but he would refuse to put the engine on. And sometimes the wind would die away. I mean, it was that the engine was an extremely complicated thing to get going on his boat. It required sit, sort of crouching in a sort of st- in a tiny space and banging, uh, banging away with a sort of handle like an old-fashioned car to get it going. But he refused at all times to put the engine on. He, if if the boat was becalmed, then we had to sit and just drift along on the tide. And did you get terrifically cross with him and say, "Oh, what a." Silly thing for this old man to be imposing upon me, a young blade. And have you now turned into your father, insisting on enjoying the thrill of the the sailing? Uh, of course, of course, of course. I'm I am somebody who doesn't like, still doesn't like to put the engine on. And this is the reason. This is the reason, because until you sat in a sailing boat with no wind, in a dead calm sea for hours and hours at a time, many times in your life, until you've done that, as a boy possibly, in a state of absolute frustration, and then started eating biscuits or whittling or something like that to pass the time, (laughs) until you've done that, and then suddenly a zephyr will pass across the water, literally like something out out of a Greek mythology. You'll see the wind god moving towards you. And at that point... You suddenly see the sail fill and the 21 tons of boat that you're in just begin to ripple its way onwards through the water. And in modern life, I race my, I've got a boat of my own and I race it. So in a race, you simply aren't allowed to put the engine on. And you know that you'll be becalmed sometimes in the Mediterranean, bonk, like that absolute dead calm. And then that little zephyr comes, you see the god coming towards you across the river. But the thing that's the miracle and the thing that makes it wondrous is the fact that this inert thing will, in response to nature, suddenly start moving, moving forward. I was once becalmed off Mallorca, having sailed overnight brilliantly from, uh, from Barcelona. And we sailed through the night and we, we were suddenly becalmed. And we discovered at that point that the engine was broken. We waited from seven in the morning until five at night without a single movement in the boat, except to be endlessly rocked from side to side. And did you feel um, the spirit of your father looking down, smiling on you, saying, now, now, my boy? Well, there's always an element of <laughs> there's <always laughs> an element of that. We didn't have any choice. We couldn't get the engine working. But the point is that the miracle of the boat, of a sailing boat, is that sudden response. And the fact that humankind designed these boats in order to do this 
and humankind long before engines and CO2 issues were in the air or all over the planet used this extraordinary capability to explore the whole of the oceans, to import tea from Australia and all these things. And so uh, I, I know that unless you come aboard my boat and you see that wonder and you understand instantly that wonder, then you will unfortunately remain a sort of Philistine and somebody who I will scorn henceforth. Now, just one more thing I want to ask you about, because we have to move on to the other wonders. Yes, but yes. Did it not put you off uh, sailing on being on a boat? Didn't you, didn't you, were you on a boat, I think it might have been in the Caribbean, which caught fire when you were on board and you had to No, no, well, in. that was typical. That wasn't. Yeah, that was, that was the Galapagos Islands. Well, what happened in that particular case, this was a motorboat. And I was with some friends who'd invited us along to go and, you know, walk amongst the wild animals, you know, David Attenborough way. And so uh, we'd arrived. It was a big motorboat, sort of 120 feet long. And there were quite a number of us. It wasn't, you know, sort of like there. And then at about in the mid, at midnight, there was a sort of, there was a, we'd gone to bed early because we were going to get up and go swimming with the hammerhead sharks. And there was a little knock on the door and it's sort of, you know, just the gentlest of, you know, tapping, knock, knock, knock. Knock, knock, knock. And the door opened. There was a lovely steward uh, who was looking after us. And he said, Mr. Jones, Mr. Jones, the captain, he very much would like you to come onto the deck. And I thought, wow, we're in the Galapagos Islands. So no doubt there's some fiery comet crossing the sky or, you know, or sort of dolphins. Yeah, sort of, you know, washing around in phosphorescence, you know, the sort of thing. So we went on stage, uh, and the boat was on fire. And, uh, and sort of like, it, I just thought at the time that if the boat was on fire, they really should have said something like, quick, the boat's on fire, get out here. But they were very discreet about it. <laughs> and so we all went on deck, just dressed in our underpants. Well, how, how gentlemanly. Mm. But you... And that proved to be a little bit alarming, because about 10 minutes later, the whole boat was on fire from one end to the other, and we had to jump into the shark, well, not, I mustn't say shark-infested waters, because I was rather surprised when I used that phrase. It wasn't used by me, but it was used by the Daily Mail, and I, I got so many letters from people who were protesting on behalf of the sharks. And uh, so I discovered that people sort of thought that, uh, perhaps it would be better if the sharks had eaten me. But there we are. That's, you know, one, one way or another. I'm sure nobody thought that. That would have only happened with a boat that had a huge engine in it that could possibly explode in that way. In a sailing boat, we wouldn't have had the trouble. Oh, well, if you stare at this poster for a few seconds, a hidden picture appears. Can we do it, please? Please? All right, go ahead. But hurry, the Easter Bunny's waiting. Wow, it's a schooner. <laughs> it's not a schooner, it's a sailboat. A schooner is a sailboat, stupid head. What's your next wonder, Griff? Well, I'm becalmed now. <laughs> My next wonder is the electric guitar. An unlikely one for me, really, because I'm not a man, as you may have gathered with my 80-year-old boat and all that, 70-year-old boat and all that stuff. I'm not, you know, one for, for modern things. But now, actually, electric guitars have a vintage sort of quality of their own, don't they? Yes, uh, but I, I do know you do play the guitar from time to time, uh, electric guitar, and I was wondering whether this represented, you know how comedians sometimes want to be rock stars yes. or rock stars want to be comedians yes. or footballers want, wish they'd been an actor. Yeah. Is there a bit within you that feels you'd rather have been a rock star than a comedian? No. Um, 
I wouldn't have made. Because I always very... felt that with because Mel was like that. Mel wasn't he? He, yes. he was brilliant at being you know your comedy partner and an actor generally, but he really wanted to be a film director or um, some sort of rock god. He was quite a convincing rock god because when I first saw him, I thought he had a sort of resemblance to Meatloaf. Or perhaps it was just meat he had a resemblance to. <laughs> and I remember seeing him before I even knew him, sitting opposite me in a, in a pub in, uh, uh, in Edinburgh, at the Edinburgh Festival. And, uh, and he certainly, but anyway, he ha- always had that sort of straggly long hair look, didn't he? he had a, and he had, as you know, it wasn't the fact that he wanted to play the guitar, although he could. Oh, could he? Right. Now, he could play the guitar but much better than me, although he, you know, he could play the guitar. It wasn't that. It was the rock and roll lifestyle that we obviously aspired to. Well, I think he achieved that, a, a good deal of it, didn't he? <laughs> he did. He didn't need to be in a band to, 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 to follow the rock and roll lifestyle. And me, I was always like slightly more quiet. But what I love about the, rock, the electric guitar, you see, is that here's an instrument that actually did transform popular music until it sort of took over. And now it's been replaced in a funny sort of way because, you know, synthesised sound generated from this miracle of what a computer and sound can do. And I only know this because I can't play the guitar. Well, I've heard you play the guitar, and I would say you, you make a sound, you make a sound come out. No, 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 but, I mean, but I, uh, you've been surrounded by musicians. We have a rule in my house. We have a room full of guitars, a drum kit, and all that stuff, and the only people who are allowed to play it are people like me who can't play it. <laughs> because if people turn up and they have sort of, you know, they, they want to play the whole tune properly... They don't want to what I call jamming or what the world indeed calls jamming. And I love just making a sort of raucous noise based upon, you know, not necessarily even three chords, one chord usually. But the point is that that, that racket is, that is sort of fulfilling to me and the rest of us making the racket. And thanks to electricity, it can be very loud. So are there particular guitarists that you... You would like you do you're trying to base your sound on at all? You know, you I mean, say Jimi Hendrix or or David Gilmore or no, not David Gilmore. I mean, he's a perfectly nice guitarist, but Jimi Hendrix, yes, and and of course Eric Clapton. And you know, the truth is that once many years ago, I think you and I were in this show together, one of those David Frost shows, or you know, those uh, things he used to organise the Prince's Trust or something like that, or some charity show of some kind. And we're standing, is at the Palladium. And I went up to watch, and Phil Collins was banging away on the piano on stage. And standing next to me, in the wings, was Eric Clapton. Yes. I mean, look, I just, there's nobody else backstage. Just, and we, he's just come up to see his mate Phil Collins and he's nodding away enthusiastically. Uh, in a sort of, you know, in a sort of rock goddish way, you know. And I'm just standing, and he turned to me and gave me a smile and a nod. Eric Clapton did. And at that point, Clive, I wanted more than anything to be able to take Eric by the arm and say, Eric, just come with me. I just, I need you to just pick up the phone here and ring my mate, uh, Henneke Gottlieb, and a few of the other blokes I was in the sixth form with, and just say, <laughs> I'm here with my mate, Griff. Well, you should have done it. People get you to do that, I, I dare say, when you're out and about somewhere. No, not, no, no, not really. No, 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 no. But that was on a different league. Because when I was in the sixth form in Brentwood, I remember when the first time when uh, Fabian Tomsett came in and we stood in the, it was in the fifth form, actually, and we stood and played... I get by with a little help from my friends, the Joe Cocker version, with that extraordinary sort of raucous guitar 
or Jimi Hendrix playing uh, uh, Hey Joe, uh, you know, these things were like, they were like a wake-up call to the blood. Do you know what I mean? They were sort of like, suddenly you thought, wow, this is like a whole new world opening up of excitement and sort of, uh, and racket. And do you know, I'll tell you this, years ago, I used to sort of, obviously, like, like many 16-year-olds, you know, I would stand, in, you know, if you ever go down that road, you know, the, the sh- off Shaftesbury Avenue. What's that one with all the guitar shops in? What's it called? It's Denmark Street. Denmark Street. Denmark Street. Standing in Denmark Street, right, one day, in my maturity, in my, I was 30-something, and I was looking in the window and thinking, ah, oh, look at those guitars, look. Look, aren't they fantastic? If only I could buy one of those. And I suddenly went, what is the matter with you? You can buy one of those. Pull yourself together. You can buy one because you haven't got your wife with you. <laughs> you haven't got your wife with you and you had the money to pay for it. Exactly. So- you haven't got Joe who would have said, oh, be sensible or anybody to say, be sensible. And funnily enough, you've, you know, you've earned a few bob in the last few years, with, you know, and, uh, and it's time to go. So bought- and I went and I bought. You bought a Jimi Hendrix guitar and you can play Hey Joe all night until Joe tells you to shut no, up. No, no, wait, wait, Clive. I do know my stories are very long-winded, but that's just yes. the way of telling you this is what happened. I went back to my house. I plugged it in. I put the guitar over my thing. And at that stage, I only knew three chords, but I could play them and I'd go bang, bang, bang and, make, and thing. My two children, who were probably... No older than three and two or five and three or something, came into the room and went crazy. They started leaping around and dancing and jigging about. And it was like a, it was like an epiphany. It was a moment where you realized, listen to this, this guitar, this noise, this amplification, this racket. No wonder it changed the world. Even three-year-olds recognize its visceral power. So I, I, give it a, I give it an extra sort of, it's a wonder of the world. Wow. 64 Fender Stratocaster in classic white with triple single coil pickups and a whammy ball. Pre-CBS Fender corporate buyout. I'd raise the bridge, file down the net, and take the buzz out the low E. God, I love this woman. Okay, electric guitar as, um, is your second wonder. And your third wonder then, please. My, now, my third wonder is a geographical wonder. And I put it in here because I'm not sure many people who live in Britain are aware of it or how close they live to it. And, and I put it in here because I'm not sure many people who live in Britain are aware of it or how close they live to it. And uh, this is the Finnish archipelago, which sits on the southern coast of Finland. Have you been to Finland, Clive? I have not been to Finland. I know this archipelago is on the Baltic Sea, which you say is off the southern coast of Finland. I'm yeah. not sure a lot of people have been to Finland uh, from Britain. No. It's not a top destination, is it? No. Now, did you go there by your boat or by a boat uh, to get to this archipelago? Well, I, I did go there by a boat, but originally what drew me to Finland and what made me take the boat there and everything like that was the fact that Mel and I, this is Mel Smith, Yeah. Uh, there are some, uh, and I can think of a few sort of contemporary comedians, you know, and and cultural commentators who may say that Smith and Jones to them was a sort of, you know, not, you know, not on the level of, you know, some of other some other great comedy programs or whatever. However, in Finland, hang on, let me let me argue with that, Griff. It is at the highest level. But then, anyway, but well, carry, I don't want you to carry argue. on. Yes, you, you should argue with it. You wrote most of it. <laughs> no, but I the, you wrote most. Of well, it. I wrote most of it, but you wrote a good proportion of it in the early days. But the, the point is that we became top 
comedians in Finland. Me and Mel. It was like, I mean, really. So we were asked, We out of the blue came this request to go to Helsinki to record something in Helsinki. And we went over there and I was unprepared for the excitement we caused just by being in Finland. Oh, you've no idea. No, it was, oh, you talk about Norman Wisdom in Albania as nothing to me and Mel in Finland, literally stopping the traffic. And uh, we, we, and we, when we went into a restaurant, the restaurant didn't get served because the waiting stopped. Anyway, what happened as a result is we were called upon to do, uh, to make a film uh, about Finland, which was shown, we were, you know, Finland's favourites, and we were chosen to make a film to show to uh, Ronald Reagan, who came over to Finland for salt talks and uh, they needed to show him a film because he thought that Finland was part of Russia. And they needed to show that it actually separated from Russia and had a bit of a sort of fight with Russia. And in order to illustrate that, they, they used Mel and Griff to make a film about Finland. And that was my first experience oh, of Finland. So oh, it must be the case that you were speaking English and everybody in Finland spoke English well enough to get the comedy, which you do have to be quite good at a language to, to understand Jokes. It did have subtitles, and it was known as Snow in Your Cottage. Was it? Which was... I wonder why. Well, Snow in Your Cottage is a symbol of, of bad luck. And alas, do you see what I mean? Was uh, translate, yes. Alas, Smith & Jones was translated as Snow in Your Cottage. So, uh, so anyway, in later years, I took my pals and I sailed a little boat all the way to St. Petersburg from Faversham in Kent. And we went to St. Petersburg and then we had to leave St. Petersburg quite rapidly because it was now the end of the year and everybody else had put their boats away. But we had to sail from St. Petersburg through to Sweden. And what you don't realise is the southern coast of Finland, right the way along it, from its border with Russia to its border with to the to Ireland, which is sticks out as a peninsula, um, there uh, and all along that coast, there are, I believe, 80,000 islands. It's just a network of islands. And I'm sorry to be so la a landlubbery question, but is it dangerous sea to sail? And if you've got these islands which are popping up, some might be just below the surface. Can you easily go aground on an island that hasn't even got a name? Or, or am I fantasising? Well, now, as it happens, this is the very interesting thing about the way, if you imagine Helsinki's right in the middle and the buoying, the buoyage system, I don't want to get too technical here because I know that people might not want to too. But if you imagine that when you come from the east, you go with the red and the green on yes. you know, one side. And when you come from the west, you have the red and green on the other side. Okay. Okay. Because you're coming into Helsinki. So the approaches are different. Now, we went to Helsinki and we went the other way. And I gave the helm to my dear old friend, Bob. And I said, Bob, you will find... I explained to him exactly what I've just explained to you because I had to go below. So I said, to your surprise, Bob, despite everything you've learned, you will leave the red boy to the, to the left, not to the right, as we have had it before. Do you know what I mean? Before we got to Helsinki. Yes. Because we're travelling along the coast in a westerly direction. I'm putting myself in Bob's position now. You've given that explanation and I'm now taking over steering yes. the boat and Bob gets it wrong. I was down below and I, I looked out of the window and we were travelling at about eight, eight knots. I looked out of the window and a massive, great red boy went floating past on the wrong side. And I was just going upstairs to say, Bob, I told you when we hit the submerged rock at about 15 miles an hour in a 45-foot boat, which then sort of leapt out of the water <laughs> and sort of 
and 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 sort of trundled onto the rock, you know, like with a great crashing, noisy sound. And me and the other people aboard, there were only three of us on this boat, we went below imagining that any moment we would just see the bottom caved in and the water plunging in. We had to take all the boards off and get down and have a look. We couldn't see anything, but we were stuck. We were stuck on this rock. We couldn't get off. We, we'd literally gone up at such speed that we'd gone up the rock and now we were stuck on the rock in the middle of this, of this channel. And uh, we'd sit there and it wasn't very busy because of the time of year, but uh, luckily no storms or anything because the islands keep the water f- out further away. You know, they protect you. You're in protected waters. But gradually, you know, after about an hour, a Finnish boat came past and they'd come past and they'd see us there and they'd be like an H.M. Bateman cartoon. They'd sort of go, oh, oh, you're on the rock. What, what are you doing on the rock? Can't you see there's a big boy there that indicates where the rock is? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, we are. Yes. And did at that point they say, and it's Griff Reese Jones from that snow, snow in the Cottage show we enjoyed with Ronald Reagan all those yes, years ago. Yes, it's you. Off the, no, this many, many years ago, they, I had a big beard and a funny hairdo in those days. They didn't recognise me except in the sound yes. for some reason. Anyway, uh, so uh, I... <laughs> I, we were in despair. And then a massive boat came past, a huge yacht, you know, massive, great, with enormous engine. And I hailed it, as one does at sea. I hailed it and said, ahoy. And I said, I wonder if you can help us. And they said, you're on the rock. What are you doing? There's a great big boy that marks. I said, oh, yes, I know that. I'm just wondering if you could, if you might give us a toe off the rock. And they said, oh, I don't think uh, you've gone so far. I think you're in trouble there. And I said, yes, OK, well, let's have a go. And we put uh, a big towing rope around the mast and around the front. And we're all standing there watching this boat. And the ropes got tighter and tighter and tighter. You can imagine, stretched, you know, the boat didn't move a bit. And I thought, I suddenly remembered stories that I'd read as a boy of ropes, tow ropes, parting. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Under the strain. And of course, when they do, all the latent energy flicks out of them and they cut men in half. So I said to the people with me, quick, I've just realized that if this rope snaps with that huge power, it'll decapitate somebody. Run, run. So we ran to the other end of the boat and that lifted <laughs> the boat off the rock. Oh, fantastic. And it was, and it was pulled off. But, but having, having been on the rock and then you're back in the water, was there a hole in the bottom of the boat? Did you then sink without trace and have to be rescued in another way? No, there wasn't a hole. So when we got the boat, we had to go to another port miles ahead, 100 miles ahead, to get it pulled out of the water so we could examine the bottom, and there wasn't uh, visible damage. At which point, Bob, who'd been sailing the boat, said, well, there we are. What was all the fuss about? Archipelago stands for collection of islands and coastlines outside of the mainland. And as you can see, that description is pretty accurate. Where we are more specifically, is an island called Atto. Now, like many islands here, this island is actually connected to the mainland with a bridge. Of course, bridges aren't the only way you can get around here, since they can't be built everywhere, except if you ask the Danish. So we, let's go on to dry land now for your next wonder, so there's less risk of drowning uh, for your next wonder. Well, let's talk about my next wonder is poker. Now, when, when did you get involved with uh, poker first? Well, uh, one of my other jobs is uh, being in plays. Yes. 
And uh, I was in a play uh, which was uh, in the West End uh, called An Absolute Turkey. It was called An Absolute Turkey. Well, all of your plays have been called that one time or another. No, no, they're <laughs> They have. They have. <laughs> they're not, you know, they're not, no. a great thing about if you want to win awards and be, you know, ju- justly fated, you know, win Olivier Awards, you have to be a bit dangerous and you have to, you know, to go out on a limb occasionally. Yeah. But anyway, the point is that you're in the West End, you're in theatre, and every night I would repair to a, a nearby drinking hostelry, uh, a private club called the Groucho Club. And when I finished the show, because obviously I'd had, you know, the elation of this great sort of uh, uh, very successful fast, Fado fast, would lead you to needing to unwind in some way. And this uh, nearby, very, very nearby, only 100 yards away, private members club, which I was a member of, I would go there. And obviously, the private members club basically closed down about 11 o'clock, 12 midnight, if not, yeah, about midnight. But there were some of us who'd come there with all the adrenaline pumping through our bodies, um, mainly uh, theatre people and chefs, and the redoubtable Keith Allen, and Stephen Fry actually was nearly there, but I mean, I think he was just up all night, every night. Uh, so uh, we would go and we go and upstairs and play poker. And it was that regular school of poker, which happened, you know, with, with incredible regularity. That was sort of, you know, six nights a week, we'd be up there. And what used to happen is hours would pass and I would play myself in a sort of, relatively, you know, sort of careful way. Um, uh, But uh, uh, the truth is that I was lucky because I don't drink. Well, I was going to say, yes, that that must, that's a huge advantage at two in the morning. It's not, it's not at 10 because there's more boldness and noise and everybody else seems to be having a lot more fun. But at five in the morning when they've continued to drink all night and now can barely keep their eyes open, um, it's amazingly easy to take large sums of money off them. So I... I used to leave the, the eventually leave you know close up the doors behind me and get out into the into the dawn light um with actually often having done you know quite well not not enough to sort of earn a living or anything stupid like that but to sort of try and uh, even the scores with everybody and go home with the amount that I arrived in my pocket feeling quite you know that I'd had a good time Daniel could become our champion if the 210 stand up well, a turn card not going to help Josh. He's one card away from elimination. Right now, it is Daniel Alive's moment. He's one card away from the title. Yep, you got to hit a seven. Got to hit the slot machine. Three sevens. Doesn't happen as an eight comes off. So that's going to do it for Josh. He's our runner up. Daniel Alive is our champion. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So you're taking your own order with your wonder. So which is the next wonder would you like to put in? Well, let's go to the GAN. The GAN. Yes. The GAN is in Australia, and we should explain, you go from Adelaide to Darwin via Alice Springs. Is that right? Or I went from Darwin to Adelaide. Well, all Darwin right, to yes. Adelaide via Alice Springs. <laughs> well, there will be two... You can go in either direction, obviously. Oh, all right, OK. Well, I'm just... I'm just... I'm, I would be... People would be surprised on that train if I'd arrived in Darwin, expecting to go... Uh, expect, anyway, never mind. So let's... So, but let's go back to your, your wonder. So... Describe the train, and it's called the GAN because it was it, that's short for Afghanistan, is it? Or yeah, it's for the Afghan. The Afghan. Sorry, Afghan. Yeah, the Afghan. Yeah. Now, why is it called the Afghan in the middle of Australia? Well, now, okay. Well, this leads you to exactly what was so fascinating about this train. I first encountered it, to be honest, in Adelaide. I went to Adelaide to do a wooden boat festival, and uh, when I was there, uh, and Joe and I were there exploring Adelaide, I saw it advertised: the GAN. And the GAN can take you now all the way across the centre of Australia from south to north or north to south. So I was saying how fascinated I was about this thing in the newspaper, in an, in an article I'd written. And would you believe it? The owners of the GAN got in touch with me and said, we'd love you to come, Griff. So uh, um, would, you, would you come and, you know, and do it? So I said, yes, I would. But they said, and then they said, Oh, well, well, actually, we'd rather you did the Indian Pacific. That's right. And they sent me east to west on that. So I didn't finally get to do it again until I made a program about Australia by train. But I loved a place called Cuba PD. And Cuba PD is uh, a sort of where they, where they mine for opals. And Cuba PD is so utterly flat and featureless uh, in the desert around there that all you can see is these sort of heaps of sort of dirt. And when you arrive in Cuba Pedi, the train sort of stops in the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere, just stops. And this is because <laughs> the, the lorry drivers of Cuba Pedi managed to persuade the mayor of Cuba Pedi that their business would fall flat because the nearest, you know, they are, these are the road trains, and the road trains drive out, uh, and they set off, and they drive, you know, a thousand miles before they get to the coast. So they do drive a hell of a long way. And uh, they're powerful sort of types. And they persuaded the, the mayor of Cooper that he would he they would go elsewhere, I don't know where, if he let the train come in and it would ruin their trade. So the train stops miles from the only settlement for thousands of miles. It's sort of utterly crazy and and you wouldn't have thought Australia, which is a practical sort of type country and a go-ahead and doesn't have any sort of room for uh, silliness, would allow such silliness to happen. But when we go out, we get in, and I'm going with a guy who's a noodler. And a noodler makes a living from visiting old workings and digging about a bit and hoping to find the opals that the other guy has missed. And as we're going along, he picks me up and he draws me 
over to Cooper Pedy, and uh, he said, "You see out there, Griff? After this is after about five miles." He said, "You see out there? That's that's called Dead Horse Mine there that we're just passing." And I said, uh, "I said, why is it called that?" And he said, "It's called that because of the horse that died there." I said, "Right." And of course, they went to bury the horse, and as they dug to bury the horse, do you know what? They discovered opals. And they just moved the horse aside and carried on digging. And they all got rich as a, as a... I said, wow. So he went on another two miles and he said, and you see that over there, that pile over there? And I said, yep. He said, that's called Dead Man Mine. And I said, and why is he called Dead Man Mine? <laughs> he said, that's the man who was riding the horse. <laughs> he managed to get another two miles and then he died and they came to bury him. And would you believe it? They found opals. <laughs> so if they'd started digging a bit quicker, the horse and the man might have survived. Well, exactly, I think. But who, this is the funny thing about being in Cooper because it was just somebody passing through who kicked a stone in the ground, a kid who kicked a stone, and uh, they happened to realise it was an opal, and then this mining town was built out of it. But um, otherwise, it, it's some of the truths of Australia are very, very, very difficult to get into your head because unlike other countries, even like the States, uh, people set off and they died exploring it. They were convinced for a long time there must be an inland sea. That, and, so, and so you're surrounded by the tales of people who wanted to map, explore this massive continent, convinced that they were going to discover Shangri-La and never did. They just set off into this huge, empty wasteland and died. And then they found their way to the centre of Australia, the very centre, dead centre. And there, to their astonishment, around Alice Springs, they found aquifers and the inland sea that they'd been looking for was there, but miles under the ground. And so Alice sort of uh, uh, pumps up the water from beneath it. And uh, Alice Springs is not red like the red desert all around it, but bright green. They've got so much water. They're using so much of it that apparently they've only got about another 20 years left and they'll have emptied everything. <laughs> That'll be the end of Alice Springs. But there we are. That's also quite Australian in a funny sort of way. The most luxurious option is travelling in platinum class. The spacious cabin has two surface seats during the day that convert into twin or double beds at night. It also includes an ensuite shower room stocked with exotic Australian-made toiletries. The other luxury option is Gold Class, a more compact cabin. These have a long surface seat that converts into bunk beds at night and an ensuite wet room. Can we move on to La Traviata you've got as one of your ones? Yes. Have... Now, is this a representative of all opera, or is it this particular opera that uh, excites your juices? Well, funny enough, I think probably we better include some of our Verdi's other great operas, because there are some which opera lovers, let's be honest. I'm not a sort of music buff at all, and you can tell because I put the electric guitar in. But, but I am somebody who quite late in life, I, was, I borrowed a car and there was only one tape in the car when I was working in uh, Glasgow, and this, I was very kindly lent this car. And I drove around and there was a tape in the car, many years ago now, uh, but it had great opera highlights. And I'd never really listened to opera before and suddenly discovered I loved it. 
That was the really. I, I, my children used to sit in the back of the car when I played opera going along, not the same car, my own car, and sort of go, make, make howling noises to indicate how little they enjoyed what I was playing. But I discovered that the grand operas of uh, Verdi, the ones that are famous, like Rigoletto and La Traviata, and of Puccini, are Italian opera, are the great art form of the 19th century. They are unbeatable. Um, they probably not as complicated as Benjamin Britten's op operas and so on. But what I did say is if I had to make a list of things that I would preserve when the planet explodes in a ball of fire and put in a spaceship, uh, you know, what I would try and conserve and say, these are the things that are so exquisite that they, are, they would require a sort of combination of genius and culture and time, you know, and learning and sort of expression through down through the centuries to be able to create, recreate. And then, funnily enough, it wouldn't include a lot of operas, but it would certainly include Verdi. It would include it because somehow when you sit and listen to Traviata, you do tend to sit and listen right the way through to the end and there are no flaws in it. It's one of those flawless things. Or Rigoletto as well, is you just keep going. Sort of the classic sort of Italian opera, same as La Boheme. It's got that, you know, there's the, the beautiful woman uh, who dies. That's, that's what... Uh... Yes, I don't know what happens in them. I've only ever twice seen, <laughs> you know, actual productions. I don't even know the story. I've seen La Traviata over and over again. I've never bothered to try and find out what they're actually singing about. It came to a surprise to me. To well, find... It's a bit sad at the end anyway, I think. Well, I know I gathered that, but it came to a surprise to me quite late on in listening to Traviata to realise it was the father-in-law singing to the, to the prostitute, not the bloke himself. But this, it doesn't, I mean, the one who was in love with it, it doesn't really matter because the whole story, the music, and I remember sitting in the car dutifully explaining this to somebody with me, was the way that, Verdi manages to run one melody and then put a sort of contrapuntal melody going on at the same time. So you have two tunes of such, and he's profligate. You know, he starts one tune and you go, that is the most exquisite tune, melody I've ever heard. And in the same aria, we'll start another tune um, before he's sort of, and then abandon the first tune. And then before he finishes the aria, start a third one. I was explaining this to somebody who actually, um, funny enough, then later, only about a year later, told me that they were a very experienced opera singer themselves. So I felt a bit embarrassed about it. So I'm, it is difficult to talk about, except that to say that it is one of the ultimate. And if you've never gone there because you're slightly put off by the idea of opera, it's a real entry-level thing. And you have to listen to it, like about La Boheme, a few times, and gradually even the bits that you found a little bit ponderous to begin with sort of shape themselves up to be so exquisite that you enter a form of heaven when you listen to them. One of Verdi's most popular operas is, of course, La Traviata. The story is based on something that vaguely really happened to Alexandre Dumas' fils. He wrote the novel. The novel was turned into a play. Verdi saw the play with Giuseppina Strapponi, the woman with whom he was living. And I think probably that this opera is one of his most personal reactions to literature because it so mirrored his own life story. You've got one more wonder to get in, and it's Fred Astaire. Yes. So uh, that's uh, slightly surprising. I don't know, but what is it about Fred Astaire? Obviously, a 
fine performer. Why is that surprising? Well, I I don't know. I, as I said at the beginning, uh, that there's some of these wonders, having known you for such a long time, I could have uh, guessed or predicted. Yeah. But uh, right. I wouldn't have written down, oh, I bet he puts in Fred Astaire. He never stops no. talking about Fred Astaire. I don't remember Fred Astaire cropping up. So uh, what what is it about no. Fred Astaire? No, you wouldn't. It's a lockdown wonder. Ah. Well, fun enough, I read this. If you go onto the iPlayer, BBC iPlayer, and you go into their film unit, they have a sort of row of things which don't seem to appear, you know, in their catch-up or anything like that, except there. And there's a, there's a row of old films which stay the same and do stay the same for an entire year, right? And they include four Fred Astaire movies. And I thought, oh, I'll watch one of these. It's a long time since I've even bothered to get on top of, you know, Top Hat or something like that. And I was amazed by what I discovered. I was amazed by the fact that Fred Astaire was not only the man who sang many of what are known as the great American uh, songbook, he sang them first. He was the original singer of these songs. I mean, never mind Frank Sinatra or or uh, uh, Set Em Up Joe. You know that song, you know, Set Em Up Joe, uh, uh, one more for my baby and one for the road. You think that's quintessential Frank Sinatra, but it wasn't. It was originally sung by Fred Astaire. And the truth is that then he does his tap dancing and he does his dancing. And I have to be one of the few people who doesn't watch Strictly Come Dancing or get off on it, you know. But Fred Astaire dancing is one of the most magical things you can ever see because his sort of delight in what he did, his adult delight in these manoeuvres that he sort of uh, achieves um, is uh, the skill that makes the dance so utterly expressive and entertaining to watch. In other words, he doesn't just dance it, he shows what he's thought of as the choreographer of these things. And when he shows it, there's a sort of enjoyment in the fact that he's done it. And he used to spend something like a month rehearsing each of the numbers, the big numbers that he did with Ginger Rogers. They'd learn them together, they'd go through them. And then if you watch them really interestingly, they're nearly always done in, in pretty much one take. And he insisted he was a, a performer who was so powerful in his metier that he insisted that he was that they shot them in one take so that the sort of there was no quick cutting to sort of um bemuse the the viewer into thinking that you know that there was any cheating going on so it's like watching a sort of athletic performance happen and it's his insouciance and his sort of uh, joy in it and also his um, extraordinary relaxed way that he does these things that make me decide that he is a wonder of the world. And if you really want to cheer yourself up, you needn't watch the whole films, which some of which are preposterous, but you can go and just find him on YouTube and put Fred Astaire in and just bang through and they'll come up and you'll get addicted to it. You'll spend the whole evening watching him. There are other great people, you know, great Mr. Bojangles and, uh, and if there were more on film, I'd be nominating the, uh, the Nicholas brothers, who are a pair of brothers who are not only charming and sweet and brilliant, brilliant tap dancers, but there's not as much of them. So it's a great pity that there wasn't more recorded of them because, uh, because of the racial sort of uh, prejudices of the era. 
But anyway, I need to say that if you want a sort of, you know, a lift the spirits and something which is completely of this world and yet otherworldly and has no uh, side to it, no message, it's pure entertainment. So there we are. That's my new enthusiasm. Well, no, uh, great. Well, uh, you know, the little I know about him, I know he started on stage, I think, dancing with his sister. And then you're quite right. When he got to film, he had the power to make sure it was filmed properly and not much around by directors cutting away and, and losing the magic of the dance, which he could obviously do for real in real life for having done it uh, in the stage. Uh, shall we try it right through? Watch the down, Mr. Gordon. I just wondered this, it's made a strange connection, but it brings it back to you, is that when you were doing Smith & Jones with uh, Mel, uh, there was a section which I was involved in, uh, in a, an assisting kind of way, yeah. was what were called Head to Heads, which was just you and Mel talking to each other, and jokes, yeah. you know, set up joke, went on for five, ten minutes, whatever it was. But that was the only bit of sort of light entertainment comedy, almost, that you can ever see, where the director, the producer have almost nothing to do with it because the camera is locked off on U2 and U2 just had to do the performing and get it right, uh, ideally first time because it wasn't easily repeatable in front of the audience. That, that was an unusual sequence and I, I thought that was, that was the really um, interesting bit about uh, Smith and & Jones. And is there, am I right to draw a connection between that and Fred Astaire? Well, maybe. We never really managed to do anything ever as good as the head tones. It was so funny, wasn't it? The struggle to do oh, no, We did lots of good sketches and things like that. That's uh, that's not true. But it was just that repeating format. Yeah, you plenty of good sketches. But do you know what I mean, though? Whether a comedy director, or you're often in their hands. You do a line and there'll be a cutaway to a reaction shot, which may or may not be the right thing to do, but it's not yes. within the control of... Yes. And I know as you as a performer and a writer and a producer, you like to be in control of things and you had it doing um, the head-to-head with with Mel. Well I don't know that that was ever the intention that we did the head-to-head that way particularly. I think what I think the reason as you... that's how it came out. I know I know and as you know but the reason we did it that way was because we'd originally started doing radio commercials together Um, and people thought oh those two are copying Pete and Dud. We weren't we ripped off the whole idea from two guys in uh, America. Right, look, uh, we've drifted off down reminiscence lane uh, too often in the course of uh, this uh, this podcast, uh, which I hope is uh, charming or possibly interesting. What I normally do at the end of the uh, of the conversation is to pick the the wonder of the world that you have nominated well, uh, and and pick one that I'm going to say yes. Let's put that in. And I think although there's some very interesting and good uh, wonders that you've uh, selected, I think I'll go for the Finnish archipelago because um, I'm not sure anybody else is likely to select that. It does sound rather charming, and it's somewhere I've never been, and it'll certainly encourage me to try and get to do a long tour of Scandinavia and that bit of uh, Finland in, in the Baltic. So, But anyway, so that's the one I'm going to go for of your selection, but all have been good, as have you, Griff. Thank you very much uh, for joining me on uh, My Seven Wonders. Thank you, Clive. This is a Stakhanov production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the ACAST Creator Network.